One Week Season. Without further ado, OWS fam, the nation, my dudes and dudettes, what is going on? Hilo and shortly joined by the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Zandamir X, the mirror, however you want to refer to him. The mirror. I like that. I'm going to run with that, actually. Sorry, X. Uh, We have such an interesting slate here on week 11. We're going to talk about some great stuff before we do. I'm going to bring in X, and then I'm going to start with a little bit of a kind of not necessarily a teaching session, but a a discussion on some key things that I've been writing about and that I think need to come out via the old words so you can listen to it as well. Uh, Hopefully that won't take too long. Uh, But before we jump into that, X, how are we doing today, man? Oh, man, I'm doing awesome. This is one of my favorite weeks of the year, not like just week 11 of nfl but like the week thanksgiving because you've got like an extra slate on thursday you've got like a giant meal which is going to be awesome like my hot take my housekeeping take is uh turkey is garbage it's a lunch meat uh prime rib is the way to go uh so, so looking forward to that uh, i've got the whole week off work um so like just hanging out with family playing a lot of dfs so it's exciting it's a good time of year i've I've heard of the the ham pivot, but I've, I don't think I've ever heard the prime rib pivot on Thanksgiving. That's a uh, that's probably a high leverage situation right there, dude. Yeah, you got to up your game. Yeah, good. I, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's interesting, man. I've never even thought about that or heard about that. I would uh, I would say that I would give it a try, but I haven't cooked Thanksgiving dinner in God five or six years. Um, when we lived on the East Coast, it was our tradition to actually drive down to Disney World on Thanksgiving. So we would, uh, we would drive down and spend, you know, four or five days at the parks down in Disney world. And, uh, it became our tradition to eat Taco Bell for our Thanksgiving meal, because we were like, if we're not cooking, like we might as well just go full trash. What is the trashiest thing we can eat right now? <laughs> just so, all the nacho cheese sauce. <laughs> yeah, dude. So it became like a running joke, uh, slash like semi tradition to go down to Disney and have Taco Bell on Thanksgiving for about five, six years there. <laughs> that's awesome though i gotta say like when i was younger um i wasn't really into sports at all and uh my buddies and i would always go to like disney i grew up in southern california um so we go to disneyland or magic mountain on super bowl sunday every year oh yeah and it was like abandoned you know there was no one there yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it was so disney was like it it was lower <laughs> than like the weather would dictate right because like when the weather starts getting nice it, it gets really packed um, but it was just replaced by like replace Americans with foreigners. Like all the foreigners were there over Thanksgiving weekend, uh, which was kind of funny, but, um, yeah, it was a good time. That's awesome. Anyway, I haven't been to Disney in ages. My daughter wants to go really bad. I know the, uh, the pandemic, um, 2020 was the first year that my eldest has been alive that we didn't go to Disney world. So that was a bummer. Um, oh, that we promised, we promised we'd make it up to her. So we're planning a trip here shortly. Nice. Yeah, I actually, uh, this week, I was supposed to be at Disneyland. Um, we were supposed to be coming back uh, today, and we had to cancel. Like, we booked it over the summer, and then Delta, and then we, so we canceled the trip. Um, but we'll make it up to her. Instead, yeah. we get DFS. The there we go. It's a decent trade. <laughs> that's, 
<laughs> yeah, all right. Well, let's talk about that. I'm going to go off on a little bit of a monologue here, but I'm going to bring you in um, as required for your thoughts on certain subjects we're going to talk to. I'm going to try and keep this to about 10 minutes um, so we don't belabor. Uh, but at the end, we'll tie it into kind of this slate and how we can apply some of the, um, the tenets that we're going to be discussing here. So the first thing that I want to bring up is something that I came up with as a part of my process that I was kind of upset with myself about last week. And for those that listened to the Todd pod probably heard me speak to it. Um, and that was the fact that with the late news, and this is probably one of the biggest weaknesses in my own game is late slate breaking news because I, I develop my thoughts and my feelings on a slate in a bubble. I then go and poke around OWS. And then from there, time permitting is when I branch out to other sites and, and kind of get a more macro sense of how the field is viewing the slate. So for last week, or for, I guess for last week, I developed all these thoughts. And then on, what was it? Saturday, right before we did the podcast, I think it was, um, we got the news um, surrounding the Patriots backfield. So when I had already developed all my thoughts on the slate, I was very constricted in how I was viewing that particular situation. And by doing so, I had already started the week out with a good idea of how I wanted to generate my leverage. And that was double pay down at court at running back and possibly triple pay down. But I married that idea to Devin Singletary. When Zach Moss was then... Um, activated off the IR and returned to the lineup, or was it concussion? I don't remember. Uh, but when he was basically rolled in for that game, I kind of dropped from my mind and my process, this idea of generating leverage through three pay down running backs. So when we got the news of Damien Harris and, and the, you know, the additional or the lack of additional bodies um, in typically a very crowded backfield, I started considering Ramondre Stevenson, but I did it in a very similar fashion to what JM described on his process podcast on Tuesday. And I actually reached out to JM this week and, and talked things, this particular instance over with him to see if he had, you know, considered this, this thought process. And that was instead of viewing that situation as a Mark Ingram or Ramondre Stevenson situation. I should have kept my mind open to consider playing, you know, all three of the paydown guys and Dearness Johnson, Ramondre Stevenson, and Mark Ingram, which I would have been on all week had I not kind of tied that idea to Devin Singletary and then not left my mind open enough to react to the news out of New England. So that is goes into what I want to talk about with respect to that kind of thought process this week is kind of the human tendencies aspect of human psychology and particular attention to recency bias um, with this week kind of plays around a play that I, I was actually in the shower getting ready for a funeral. Shout out Todd. Uh, yep. Another funeral. Um, I was actually in the shower when this thought hit me and it was in the tail end of my process after I had read everything that JM had put on the site, which I haven't even branched out to other sites yet in my process this week. But that being said, it dawned on me that I was 
looking to pay down at quarterback this week. So we'll discuss that here shortly as well. But I was looking to pay down at quarterback this week, but I was looking to do so only through the lens of Cam Newton. I eliminated Joe Flacco. I eliminated some of these other quarterbacks down here where I, I knew that Cam Newton gave me the best mix of floor and ceiling for this week. I realized while I was in the shower that I had not even considered Tyrod Taylor. And in assessing my real-time thought process through this situation, I came to the realization that it was recency bias. And I'm like, I'm like the game theory guy. And I preach about not allowing recency bias to creep into our thoughts and how we view a slate. And I was sitting there doing it all the way up until Saturday morning, not even considering Tyrod Taylor. So what do what can we learn from that? Well, one is basically I'm I'm trying to consistently tweak, analyze, see how my process can grow, see if I'm doing anything wrong. Last week, um, you know, closing myself off to the the three pay down running back build, which ended up winning somebody a million dollars. So that goes uh, beyond beyond the point though that I want to make. And this week was completely neglecting to even consider a player that I now view as one of my higher leverage situations on the slate. So all that being said, like the study of game theory and how we are going about attacking a game most optimally, where everybody knows the rules, everybody has the same information, but nobody knows how anybody else is going to be attacking the slate. And that leads us into like why we why we care about chalk build, why we care about what the field is doing, how do we generate these uh, leverage situations. And the next thing I want to talk about, and I'm actually going to bring in X here after I, I give you the softball, but that is what is a pivot and what is leverage. So from examples from this week's slate, a pivot at the running back position would be Jeff Wilson Jr. and Deontay Foreman. They're priced within $200 of each other. They are um, in similar ownership, uh, I guess, a similar ownership brackets in the sense that you know we're expecting similar ownership numbers on each of them. An example from the wide receiver position would be Michael Gallup and Rashad Bateman. So they're priced $300 uh, away from each other, and they're both in expanding opportunity spots. So that would be a pivot. A pivot doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily right, isn't necessarily wrong. It just depends on what our goal is, how it interacts with the rest of our roster, and what the end state goal that we're going for on a particular roster is. The idea of leverage, think about the best way to describe leverage would be the if-then statements that we have continued to talk about this year. If player X fails, again, we'll use um, an example from this week. If Deontay Foreman fails, then who is the most likely to benefit from that, uh, from that player failing? So as opposed to considering that situation from who is priced around him that I can throw in, where you're basically just saying, I expect Jeff Wilson to outscore Dante Foreman, and I don't care about generating leverage from that particular instance because I have leverage on the rest of my roster. Now you look at how to actually generate that leverage. I expect Dante Foreman to fail. So then 
who benefits most in a game where Dante Foreman fails? Well, Tennessee is playing Houston. We expect these teams to score points, not from their own aggression created, but just because these defenses are extremely attackable. Look at real quick. I want to pull up these stats. The Tennessee defense has allowed 2,127 receiving yards to opposing wide receivers this year. This is going to be something that we're going to bring up uh, in a little game environment discussion as well. But just for comparison's sake, the next team is over 300 yards allowed to wide receivers lower than that in the Miami Dolphins. Compare that to the Chargers and the Bills, who are the top two teams. They're sitting at 1,122 and 1,154 yards, respectively, allowed to opposing wide receivers. A thousand yard difference over the span of 10 games, nine games in some of these instances. That is extremely actionable information. Okay, so we know that the Titans are burnable in the secondary. We know that Houston's defense is kind of a ragtag uh, bunch of groups throughout. So if we expect Tennessee to score points, look at the state of the Titans this week. They are down Derrick Henry. They're now down Jeff Swain. They're down Julio Jones. They're down um, all these you know regular contributors on offense. Well, if Houston is this kind of sieve-like defense where they can be pretty much be anywhere, if Tennessee is winning all these games where they're not favored to win, but they're pulling out victories with while fighting through all these injuries and everything that's been going on, like this is a team who is tied for the league lead uh, in record right now. They're tied atop the league with Arizona and the Packers. Like that's, that's incredible for what this team has been going through. So if Dante Foreman fails, but we still expect Tennessee to score points, like the leverage play here is A.J. Brown. Further, or add a little bit more additional thoughts and, and other angles that generate leverage, where is A.J. Brown priced? He's priced $100 more than C.D. Lamb, who's expected, not showing it currently, but I expect to be up in the 14 16 18% ownership range. So not only are we differentiating our roster by how the swap from Donta Foreman, a pay-down value running back, to a pay-up wide receiver, how that changes the dynamics in our roster building. We're also generating direct leverage off of a highly owned running back and a highly owned wide receiver. So this is what I want to kind of bring up the idea. And I was trying to think of how I can best define this idea and convey it in a digestible manner for the listeners. And I came up with this tag phrase of, Floating play leverage. So I wanted to do that because there isn't just one way of generating leverage. The field is kind of on the extremes of this equation. They are either utilizing pivots, though so the one for one swap in similar price range, or they are using leverage through the stacks that are building. And in the middle is this idea of floating play leverage that I want to bring up. AJ Brown would be considered a floating play leverage play this week. He can get there based on the status of the Tennessee Titans and the makeup of that game environment. He can get there on his own without bringing anybody else with him. And he offers massive direct leverage off of Donta Foreman and CeeDee Lamb's ownership. So now I'm going to bring X in and we're going to talk real quick about any other floating play leverage spots that we see this week to try and keep our minds open, I would say, to different ways of 
generating leverage uh, in DFS. X. Yo. Um, yeah, so I actually kind of wrote about a similar concept in my masterclass course that I have uh, that I wrote this year for the marketplace. And, and basically, it's like you have to think about what you're saying with the plays you make on a roster. And so the example I frequently used um, in my course was Derrick Henry. And, you know, when Derrick Henry is going to be massively owned, and you can apply this to any team, um, but when Derrick Henry is going to be really owned, uh, what you were saying if you didn't play him was one of two things, or sorry, one of three things. You're either saying the Titans' offense fails utterly and don't, doesn't score any points, right? Like, or just, you know, scores one touchdown or something like that, a bunch of field goals, um, and just doesn't generate any fancy goodness. That's option one. You're saying, or option two, uh, the Titans' offense succeeds, but they the, the scoring is distributed in such a way that no one player generates a really strong fantasy score. Um, and now that's always possible. Like that's always a possibility for any team. It's it's less likely for some than others, right? It's less likely for teams that have really concentrated offenses. Um, and then option three is. Uh, the Titans score a lot of points, but it doesn't come through Derrick Henry. And so what Hyla is kind of getting at is then, well, who does it come through, right? And so if the field is expecting that, uh, you know, that Dante Foreman um, score is going to, you know, generate, is going to get the, the the work and the, the touchdowns for Tennessee, well, what happens if that's not true? Does Tennessee just flop against Houston? Well, possible, probably not. Um, does Tennessee score, but it's just really spread out? Well, I mean, Julio Jones is out. Their backfield's thin. Now Jeff Swaim's out. I mean, their their team's kind of thinning out. Uh, they don't have like a they don't have a super uh, broad core of, of skill position players right now. So you know, while it's while either of those other two outcomes is possible, the likeliest outcome if Foreman fails is that uh, a Tennessee pass catcher gets there. And so then what Tennessee pass catcher gets there? Well, it's, you know, A.J. Brown's the most likely one. He's the alpha of their offense. Um, or you could go a different direction. You go for like Marcus Johnson, I suppose, or take a shot at one of the tight ends. But, you know, what I was basically saying is you know, you're creating if-then statements. And so you can do this by going down, just going down the list of like highly owned plays. So. There's a lot of ownership this week on A.J. Dillon and Devontae Adams. A.J. Dillon's going to be the highest on running back. Uh, Devontae Adams is going to be one of the highest on pass catchers. Um, but are there other players on the Green Bay Packers? Well, yeah, there's a guy named Marzvaldis Gantling who is really fast and who is a deep threat. And so, you know, and this is a pretty thin play, but like if if MVS catches two touchdowns on long bombs, he gets a bunch of yardage, he gets two scores, uh, and and that's direct leverage off of Dylan and Adams because he's he's taking yardage away from them, um, and he's taking play volume away from them because you know he tends to get there on these long touchdown passes, uh, which just kills a drive, right? I mean, there's no PPR scoring to happen then. If if MVS is a 60 yard touchdown, that could be that could be like six Dylan rushes, a Dylan catch, and four Adams catches to get 60 yards otherwise, um, and he does it in one play. And and I'm not trying to call out his MBS system smash play this week. I'm just saying this is how you should think about these leverage plays. Um, you know, you've got we've got Michael Gallup and C Lamb coming in at probably very, very high ownership. And they're good plays, but like what if it's Dalton Schultz? Um, what if it's Cedric Wilson? What if it's Ezekiel Elliott? You know, like we're just saying, like the point is you want to look at if this play fails. What happens? Or do you, and do you want and what outcome do you want to bet on? Do you want to bet on that offense floundering entirely, or do you want to bet on that offense succeeding, but it comes through a route that's different than expected? And then what Hilo touched on as well that's really important is you want to find ways to generate <clears throat> multiple leverage angles when possible. And so AJ Brown's a really good play this week. He's a really good leverage play because he's he's sort of a double leverage play. 
He gives you leverage off of Donta Foreman, who's going to be pretty highly owned, and he gives you leverage off of the other wide receivers who are priced right around him. So MVS is, a le- is less of a good leverage play this week. He gives you leverage off of Devontae Adams and A.J. Dillon, although uh, there's nothing to say that like they can't, one of them cannot also succeed along with MVS because of how cheap MVS is. But there's not a lot of ownership at like on the, at the sub-4K wide receiver range, so he doesn't give you leverage off of like some really highly owned chalk wide receiver. MVS would be a better leverage play this week if there was another wide receiver who was in his price range who was going to be like mega chalk. And you could argue, I guess, Gallup, but he's 500 more. So I don't, I kind of consider them that's on DraftKings. That's enough of a difference to me to not think of them as direct leverage. But I suppose you could, you could argue they're close. So that's kind of how I think about leverage. And I like the way that Hilo explained that. I also want to drop something that I want to talk about a little later. So I'm going to drop, I'm going to allude to something. Hilo mentioned yardage allowed to wide receivers. Um, and he mentioned the Bills and the Chargers as the, two defenses that have allowed the fewest yards to wide receivers in the NFL this season. Uh, guess what defense is number three? Hilo, do you know? Yeah, dude, the Raiders. The Raiders, that's right. And guess what? Offense is projecting for a whole lot of ownership this week. Oh my it's God, dude, I love Bengals you. wide receivers. Anyway, we'll get to that later. Um, yeah, I wrote that up. But I just, I saw you, he touched on the yardage allowed. <laughs> it's funny because I wrote up the Cincinnati-Vegas game and the Oracle a bit. Um, and then as I've continued to kind of dig in, uh, I've realized I my thoughts on that have somewhat evolved. So anyway, um, I also want to touch on what Hilo said, though, about like I, late breaking news. So <laughs> there's two things, two thoughts here. One, bias is called, like the, the term bias, what it means. It doesn't mean that you're uh, we, we tend to think of it as being sort of like either bigoted in some way when you think about bias as it, as it relates to like a social issue. Um, or we tend to think of it as being like a blind, like you have a blind spot in your thinking. And that's not really the case, right? It's just the way the human mind works, that like we spend all this time digging into research and formulating our strategy for the week. And then late breaking news, it's hard to put the same amount of thought and thought into that because we have less time to kind of digest it and adjust. And there's a natural tendency to be like, well, I've already done my research. I don't want to go back to the drawing board all over again. Um, and I don't think we really, I think we might've mentioned Ramondre Stevenson like in passing in our show last week. Um, and then, you know, I actually ended up playing a bunch of him. I had like 25% of Ramondre Stevenson in my tournament rosters, um, which was awesome. And, um, and he was, you know, he was a great leverage, not just off of Ingram and Johnson, but also in that like triple pay down running back strategy that Hilo is mentioning. Um, so like we have to think carefully about how we respond to late breaking news and, tough, um, especially if you're the kind of person who does a lot of research throughout the week, because then it's really easy to fall into that, like, oh, I just don't want to rethink everything um, <clears throat> because it's a lot of work. But that's where some of the biggest edges are generated. Like Ramondre Stevenson was almost unowned last week. I think he was like two or three percent on DraftKings. Um, he was similar to that on FanDuel and Yahoo. Um, and, you know, he was a pretty pretty close on paper play to Mark Ingram and Darren Johnson. Um, you know, you could, there was maybe a little more uncertainty in how they might use him. Um, but the ownership gave you, you know, the ownerships are more than made up for that uncertainty. And you can see that the field has a hard time adjusting to that kind of late news. Um, and, and also kind of embracing that uncertainty of like, you know, 
if Damien Harris was out and, and we knew that Ramondre Stevenson was going to be the guy, then we would have gotten a lot of ownership on him. Um, but Damien Harris was out and and we didn't know, uh, right? Like because Brandon Bolden had been playing a lot and like who knows in the Patriots backfield has been a source of mystery and frustration to DFS players for years. And so, you know, the field's hesitant to embrace those sort of situations. And that's I think I told Thomas Rawls story on this podcast um, a few weeks ago about like a late swap to Thomas Rawls. And, you know, those kind of situations, they don't come along often where you can get a really strong play at really low ownership. And, and I have a hard time doing it too. Like, I mean, God, like obviously hindsight's 2020, but like, I wish I'd played more Ramondre Stevenson, not just because he scored two touchdowns, but because his, he was so low owned. Like I thought that as soon as I, as soon as the slate locked and I saw the ownership, I was like, fuck, I should have played more Ramondre um, before any you know plays had happened because the field is a hard time adjusting to that. And so if we can kind of teach ourselves to, uh, to kind of go back to the drawing board and set aside our preconceived notions and our research that we've done throughout the week and say, well, the slate just changed. I need to kind of reevaluate it from the ground up. Um, we can create a massive edge and that doesn't happen every week, right? There might be like just a handful of situations on the season that give us that kind of opportunity um, that like Ramondre Stevenson gave us, uh, you know, I don't know if, you know, I don't know if there's one this week, there might be, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about a potential situation like that. Uh, but like the better you can teach yourself to kind of be willing to go back and challenge your previous thinking and reevaluate everything from the ground up when we get new news um, and set aside your, your biases that you've you've built up through your previous research, uh, the better you set yourself up to like take advantage of that late news and the, the massive opportunities that the occasional like wild late news can generate for you. And this is applicable to all sports. This is not a, this is not an NFL thing, right? Like you can use this in, in any DFS sport you play. So it's a, it's a skill worth developing. I love it, man. You brought up one thing that we're going to talk to uh, after I take the mic back for a minute, um, and that is late swap. Um, I'm really glad that you brought that up. We're going to discuss that next uh, after this next blurb. But we have just looking at the the state of the slate, Cincinnati and Las Vegas, Arizona and Seattle and Dallas and Kansas City in the late games. So while I talk about this next thing, think about who or which game out of that game you think has the most eyes on it from the field. So which game has the highest combined ownership out of those three I just listed? Cincinnati and Las Vegas, Arizona and Seattle, and Dallas and KC. And we'll come back to that here shortly. The, oh God, now I lost my train of thought. Hold on, let me get it back. All right, well, uh, what I was going to talk about just left me. So we're going to go straight into... Um, into the discussion on late swap this week. Any or X, I'll go to you. What game out of those three that I listed has the highest combinatorial ownership this weekend? Oh man, I haven't. I think it's gonna be KC Dallas. Um, I, I'm almost. It's the projections right now. There's a lot of projected ownership on Cincinnati wide receivers, so I haven't added it up. Um, but I'm pretty certain by the by the time that this like closes, and especially with the Gallup news, or sorry, with the MRE news that pushes Gallup up um, and pushes Lamb up, I think it's going to be Dallas Kansas City. That is correct in both statements. It is currently Cincinnati <laughs> and Las Vegas, and I expect it to be Dallas and Kansas City. Okay. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. <laughs> the, I felt. I felt 
like an asshole as I was writing up the end around this week and I completely shit on basically two spots <laughs> that I had seen everybody around the industry and on OWS talking about. And that was Michael Gallup. I, I am way lower on Michael Gallup this week than the field is. And I'm way lower on the Cincinnati and Las Vegas game than I think the field is. Real quick, we'll talk about Cincinnati and Las Vegas and why that is. Well, what have we seen out of Las Vegas over the last two weeks after Dingle McFuckleberry um, <laughs> left the team, uh, sitting in a jail cell somewhere? Uh, well, we've seen this def- or this offense like struggle, man. They have looked one-dimensional. They have looked predictable. They have looked like they are only capable of attacking these short areas of the field. All of the deep passing attempts that they've had have been way off target and have been thrown into tight coverage. Like this offense is not doing well, man. So they've scored over the last two games, they've scored 16 and 14 points since Hingle McCringleberry is now out. Okay. So who were their opponents in those games? They played the New York Giants. They lost 16 to 23, and they played the Kansas City Chiefs. They lost 14 to 41. All right. Well, those aren't exactly shut down defenses. Like, why is this happening? Well, it's happening because this offense is like one dimensional right now. They are predictable and they're not like they're not able to do the same things without the presence of a viable field stretcher. You say what you want about Brian Edwards. Like, yeah, he's fast, but like he is not on the same level as Hingle McCringleberry deep. Like, they're just not the same player. So if they're trying to, turn Brian Edwards into that player, like it's going to take some time, bro. And this is kind of what we're seeing is this offense is slow to adjust under, oh, by the way, under an interim head coach, slow to adjust to a pretty significant ding to their offense that happened out of nowhere. All right. Then we look at the other side of this game. And X, I'm so glad you brought this up because I brought this up as well in my writings. And that's the fact that this Raiders team has surrendered the third fewest yards in the NFL to the wide receiver position, 1166. So they're only, they've only allowed 44 more passing yards over the entire season to wide receivers than the bills. And we, we, how do we view the bills? Well, they're this elite lockdown secondary with Tredavious White and they like they just don't give up points to wide receivers. Okay, the Bills have allowed 3 touchdowns to wide receivers. The Raiders have allowed only 7. That is pretty incredible if you think about the the state of this team. And that's what Kansas City scoring so 3 last week. <laughs> exactly. Like all of this comes together, like this game is far less appealing to me than I think the field is given credit for. When you then consider that I project the combinatorial ownership of this game itself to grow as the um, you know additional news comes out and people are looking for additional value plays, well, I think T. Higgins is going to be one of the highest owned, if not the highest owned wide receiver on the entire slate. He's currently projected there, and I think that's honestly going to be more than his current 25 to 28% ownership. So, like, all of this comes together. Like, yeah, T. Higgins is likely going to see seven to nine targets. He's likely, those targets are most of the time high-value targets where they're looking to get him uh, moving in space. You know, he's not running 
He's not running comebacks. He's not running slants into triple coverage. He's he's running high upside routes. So like seven to nine targets in high upside, in a high upside generating role, like it sounds pretty good. But when you consider that we could see 30, 35% ownership on a wide receiver at 5.4 who has yet to score over 17 fantasy points the entire season, like I, the hairs on the back of my neck start to stand up and I'm like, why? Why is he going to be on a third of the rosters this week? And so these are the things just to kind of think through. And again, like I, I even like texted it to the group of contributors last night that like, dude, I feel like a sleazebag. I'm over here shitting on this game that is expected to be like generate one of the, you know, the most interest from the field this week. Um, but yeah. That's kind of my thought process around that. Anything to add there before we go to late swap a little bit more in depth? No, I just want to say, like, I mean, it took me a bit kind of digging in to sort of like come to this thought process for myself, like where you know, I looked at the total um, and that's kind of my, you know, the starting point of my research. I said, aha, you know, this is a this is a high total game. It's not quite as high as the KC Dallas. So it's going to be a natural pivot point. Um, there are some cheap options in this game. Um, it's a highly, you know, the, the Bengals are a highly concentrated offense with three, you know, really good wide receivers. Um, and so I kind of like jumped on that and thought, aha, this is great. And then in Las Vegas, like the defense is sort of people don't think of the Raiders as a good defense. And it's because they don't have like they don't have like elite shutdown cornerbacks that you know where you, you know, everyone knows their names, they know who they are. Um, you know, they don't have like Stephen Gilmore or or Travion Diggs, right? Like, but the the combination of like solid overall secondary play and their defensive scheme is just designed to filter targets away from perimeter wideouts. Um, and, and so the Raiders, you know, their defense isn't elite. They allow a reasonable number of points per game, but it just, it doesn't tend to come through wide receivers and in the Bengals, their production does tend to come through wide receivers. So it's sort of like a strength on strength matchup. And, you know, for me, that means that puts it in a, the category of like highly volatile plays. Um, and my general perception, as I say a lot, is you, know, you play highly volatile plays at low ownership. You don't play highly highly volatile plays at high ownership, right? Like you want to you want to go for you want to get those plays when no one's on them, not when everyone's on them. And so, I think I, my initial attraction to that game, as I continue to kind of think more about it and 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 dig into the defensive stats for the Raiders, it, it sort of faded. And and that's also a reason why we need to be willing to kind of continue to challenge our early assumptions, right? Don't get locked into like a fixation that says, ah, this is the game, I must play it, right? Like we've got to be willing to to kind of challenge that and uh, and revisit our assumptions as we learn more. Yeah, so with that thought process, I want to do a quick just uh, experiment slash exploration of see if we can figure out if, you know, if somebody's listening to this podcast and they, they have know nothing about football and they know nothing about the Raiders defense. I wonder if they can come to similar conclusions. And we'll do that by looking at some defensive stats for the Raiders. The Raiders have generated the third worst starting position for opposing offenses. So that means for them, from their perspective, they have forced teams to march a bigger chunk of the field. So that is a plus to them, right? We look at their points allowed per drive. They're ranked 23rd at 2.3 points per drive. So teams are scoring highly efficiently against them, okay? 
So if they're forcing, then we'll look at drive success rate. They are ranked 20th in drive success rate allowed at 73.9%. Okay, so they're forcing teams to basically march the field. They're doing so if we, you know, lump in the other stats with the as far as passing yards allowed to wide receivers, they're doing so by forcing teams into the short areas of the field and forcing them to march the field to score points on them. Okay. Are teams having success doing that? Yes, they've allowed 23rd uh, or they're 23rd in the league in points allowed per drive. So they're allowing team, they're forcing teams to attack the short areas of the field, but they're not good at getting off the field in third down. We can dig up that stat here in a minute. They're not good at getting off the field in third down, and they're not good at preventing teams from moving the chains. So they are basically trying to force teams into a very like Bill Belichickian, like, hey, we're going to let you guys move the ball between the 20s, and we're, but we're going to force you to do it over the span of you know, 8, 10, 12, even more plays. What does that do? That eats up time on the clock. That, eats, that um, limits the total number of offensive plays that are going to be um, played from this game. So yes, like... Cincinnati has, over the last three or four weeks, shown an increased pass rate. We know Vegas likes to pass because they cannot run the football. So we know that there's going to be a boost to the expected offensive plays, but this is a pretty much a counterbalance to that those points. So there's a lot going on in this game. There's a lot to kind of unpack, unpack. But for me, because it's expecting to garner so much interest, um, you know, even from the Raiders side, uh, we have expected heavy ownership on Darren Waller. We have expected heavy ownership on, or I guess moderate ownership on Hunter Renfro, who I guess the field is just going to play every week. Uh, so I will never play, um, but that's besides the point. Um, but yeah, so there's just a lot of interest on this game where in my eyes, there's a lot more ways for this game to fail than the field is giving credit for. Let's talk about late swap. We have those three games that we mentioned before, Cincinnati, Vegas, Arizona, Seattle, and Dallas, Kansas City. And one of the plays that I'm going to talk to real quick has that kind of multi-layered leverage angle that both X and I alluded to earlier. What's going on in that game? Well, we expect insane amount of ownership on James Conner at 6.1. We know that Kyler is looking to come back um, from his ankle injury, uh, all signs honestly point to him playing, um, which boosts Connor's expected value here, uh, and his range of outcomes. But on the other side of the same game, we have this wide receiver dude named Tyler Lockett. And I broke down in the end around how there's really three players on this slate who have like an elevated chance of going for 40 points or more. Those players are Tyreek Hill, um, Christian McCaffrey, and Devontae Adams. Like Those are the players that are going to pace the, this slate in games of 40 points or more if we were able to play it out 100 times. There were two names that I listed who are a tier below those three that would score at the next 40 points or more at the next highest rate, and that's Tyler Lockett and CeeDee Lamb. We'll talk about CeeDee Lamb when we get to that in the next portion, but Tyler Lockett is priced in the same range as a chalky uh, James Conner. And if we think about 
our understanding of what I call game or level two game theory, we can assume that the field is likely going to be playing Connor in the flex if they can this week. Because after the hangover from last week, I think we're going to see a little bit more three running back rosters this week. And obviously, you're going to play, you know, basic DFS theory. You're going to play your late players in the flex if you can. So a good, you know, a good 30, 40% of the total. James Conner ownership is going to have James Conner in the flex. So this presents a a pretty interesting late swap opportunity and scenario. If you build that way is assess, you know, in the third quarter of the, the early games assess, how am I doing? Do I have any spots where I need ceiling where I can leap a huge portion of the field? If James Conner puts up a week 10, James Conner game, you know, and scores 15 points And on the other side of that same game, Tyler Lockett erupts for one of his crazy, you know, 200 yard, two touchdown games and puts up 40, 45 fantasy points. So that is probably the most glaring opportunity for late swap. There are many more X. Talk to me a little bit about late swap this week. I will also just note, I think that like broadly. The early game environments are just not super attractive like there are some individual plays that you might like from them but i think that there's not going to be a whole lot of game stacking of the early games um you'll see some some packers vikings um, but you won't see a lot of other game stacks of the early games right i think you'll see like you'll see ownership on like the titans the bills the browns the 49ers um but i just don't think you're gonna see a lot of early stacks and so I think that that sets you up to take one of two angles this week, and, and you can vary it if you're entering multiple rosters, where you can either take the angle of building around some of the early games, and then based on how those go, you can position yourself later to see, like, um, you know, if you build around a low-owned game environment, like you decide to play like Bills, but also like you're, you build a Bills-Colts game stack, or you build a 49ers-Jags game stack, and that hits, and you're and you're feeling really good, you have a really high-scoring roster, then you can sort of chalkify that roster and be like, cool, I got some low-owned, you know, success from the early games, and so now I can do whatever I want. I can just play the best on paper plays and call it a day. Um, and, you know, and hope those hit and not what ownership because I got my I sort of I got my low owned plays from the early games or you can take the opposite approach and say, I'm only going to play the really good on paper plays from the early games. Um, and and then you can decide what you want to do based on how you're doing after, you know, after those early games. Uh, and you can say like, OK, well, I, I played a bunch of A.J. Dillon and he hit and I know a bunch of people have A.J. Dillon. Um, but you also like, you know where the chalk is, right? Like after the early games, there's gonna be a lot of A.J. Dillon, a lot of Devontae Adams. There's going to be a lot of probably actually Nick Chubb is not projecting for a lot of ownership. Um, it's gonna like you can see where like where the early game ownership is gonna be. There'll be a lot of like Jalen Waddle, um, a fair amount of Debo Samuel, a lot of Jeff Wilson. And so based on how those early plays go, like you can enter the late games with more information and then you can decide, okay, you know, all the early chalk hit and I was underweighted, and so therefore I have to do something different now. Or a bunch of the early chalk failed and I didn't have it, and so now I'm in a great spot. But like at the end of the day, right, like making decisions with more information is advantageous. And we know um, God, Roto-Grinders got this information like some years ago and for DraftKings and FanDuel. And it was like some extremely small percentage of players ever used late swap. And what's interesting is that FanDuel decided to take late swap out for a while. I think they did it in NBA. And like the player base was outraged and they like rioted. And so FanDuel added late swap back in. And so it's like people want to have this flexibility, but almost no one uses it. 
And so like there's a huge edge just in using it. And when you have a week like this where there's like such and there's so much there's so many attractive plays in the late games, that gives us an opportunity to kind of build around that. Like it's one thing to sort of do like the panic late swap of, you know, I had the big I had some rosters and I, I saw how they were going and then like this one's doing well in a tournament and so I'll look at it. But like there's a the that's like level one late swap or like level one is like, oh, this roster is not doing well and it's got a couple chalky plays in the late games. And so I'll, I better pivot those to, you know, to to more contrarian plays to try and salvage something like, cool, that's a good thing. You should do that. Um, but sort of level two late swap is when you can think about what the future state looks like, what the future games look like, and build that from the beginning to plan around using late swap heavily on that slate. This is one reason why I love the Thanksgiving slate, because you have three games that are separate. And so like you can kind of go as you go through the day, you can see how, you know, how your day is going and how the field is doing. And so you have a sense of like, how am I doing compared to the field? And then you can you can you can adjust accordingly. And having that edge is massive because you're able to make decisions with more information. Um, which is always advantageous. And you know that the vast majority of the field is not doing that. So I'm I'm planning to build a lot sort of around uh, planning to late swap this week. And this is usually what I do when there's like really attractive late games. I love how you broke that down and I got nothing to add there, man. Dig it. So let's talk real quick about kind of the, the macro state of the slate. And the, the main funnel for this week is through the running back position. Pulling up expected ownership, we currently have one, two, three, four, five, six to seven running backs priced at 62, 6.2 or less that are expected to garner 15% or more ownership. Add in Jeff Wilson, because I think his current 10 to 12% is going to jump. And that's why I say between six and seven. But the top you know, six or seven expected highest owned running backs on the slate are all these guys that are moderate to pay down in pricing. So what does that mean to you, X? Um, from a macro perspective on this slate. Yeah, it's one of the first things that jumped out at me is like, I always go sort, um, I get a lot of the projections in Fantasy Labs and sort the ownership. And the top eight running backs currently, and then nine, once you figure that Jeff Wilson's likely to climb a little bit, the top nine running backs are going to be 6,200 or less. Um, and, and the first running back who is more than that with any ownership is is Christian McCaffrey at 10.7%. Um, and so, you know, you can, I love when the chalk build comes together so clearly and, and you can build around this, right? Like these, they're, these are viable plays, these running backs, right? These cheap ones. And I think it's entirely reasonable if you want to say, Hey, I'm just going to like rotate those cheap running backs and try to find, you know, the ones that are going to hit and, and likely some of them will. Um, but I think it also introduced like one way you can get into like, building leverage is through individual plays on a roster. And the other way that we talk about a lot on this pod, and Hyler talks about a lot, especially in his article, is leverage through roster construction and salary allocation. And so if you if you realize that the majority of the field is going to have two running backs or at least two running backs priced 6,200 or less, then the, the clearest way to generate roster construction, like salary allocation leverage, 
is just don't do that, right? Like pay up at running back, have one cheap running back and two expensive ones or, or one expensive run, you know, one expensive and one and one cheap one and a wide receiver in the flex. Right. But either way, like, I think there's going to be a lot of strong running back scores. So I'm, I'm with high low on there being on this being a week to at least allow running back in the flex. Um, but like, you know, look where you can get uh, running backs with like really strong ceilings who, you know, some of these elite running backs have ceilings that exceed what you can reasonably expect, like Miles Gaskin to put out or Mark Ingram to put out. And so you could build rosters centered around like Christian McCaffrey plus Dalvin Cook. And that. Ask majority of the field is going to be doing, but you don't have to like go play, you know, I don't know. Devin Singletary to get it or, you know, Jordan Howard, right? You're playing good plays. And that's the, that's the best kind of roster construction leverage is when you can, is when you can still just focus on playing really strong plays, um, but you distinguish your roster, differentiate your roster through its construction and allocation of salary. Yeah. And let's look at those top expected ownership running backs, AJ Dillon, 34 ish, 35%. Mark Ingram, Mark Ingram, 28 to 32%, depending on where you look. James Connor, 25 to 27%. Jeff Wilson, 22 to 24%. Miles Gaskin, 21 to 23%. Okay. David Montgomery, 17 to 19%. Daryl Williams, uh, that's going to come down, but with CEH uh, was just announced as in what a couple hours ago. Uh, but that's going to come down, but he's currently at 17-ish percent. Deonta Foreman, 15 to 18%, depending on where you look. Michael Carter, like stop me when any name sounds outrageously good outside of like the top two in my mind, AJ Dillon, James Conner. I will ask, also add Jeff Wilson, uh, since we're talking about the running back position as a whole. He would probably be the next player in my mind um, that fits kind of a four to five box we talk about like checking the boxes on running backs uh he would be in there as well but like a bunch of these guys like mark ingram um what's going on they have two offensive linemen including teron armstead who are going to be out uh the other is uh the ram chick dude um so both <laughs> uh ends both both tackles uh are going to be out for the um for the saints this week they also have uh tony jones coming back they also have, I guess, a an explanation as to why Mark Ingram saw 85% of the snap rate last week. Um, that coming from, um, shout out to Lex uh, from our in-house Saints uh, beat reporter there from Lex Moralia. Uh, he said that basically he saw that um, his the elevated snap rates for Mark Ingram last week were entirely due to Ty Montgomery breaking a finger on his hand early in the game. So all that comes together, like Mark Ingram at 30% ownership, I'm like chuckling. I want to like, I want to go like streaking around the neighborhood at how elated that makes me. Um, don't picture that by the way. Uh, I'm <laughs> Can we yeah. note really quick, like that let's, let's remember that, um, the Saints really like Tony Jones. The Saints cut Latavius Murray uh, at the end of preseason to keep Tony Jones as their backup for Alvin Kamara. So, you know, I don't think there's any reason to expect that Mark Ingram is going to be like this bell cow this week. And yet that seems to be what most people are expecting. I, I 
I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but like, I think that that's, you know, when he's coming in at such high ownership, like that's, yeah, I'm with Hilo. I am happy to avoid that. Like, I think Tony Jones is going to play a lot more than uh, a lot of people are realizing. We talked about Jeff Wilson. Next on the list is Miles Gaskin, uh, David Montgomery, Darrell Williams, Donta Foreman, Michael Carter. Those are all the names before we get to Christian McCaffrey at 10 to 12% ownership. How do you like your, you like, you go to a restaurant, like ordering a steak, like, okay, we're, we're in the DraftKings lobby and we're ordering our roster. Like, how do you like, how do you like your main course, which is the running back position? How do you want your steak cooked? Uh, I want my steak cooked uh, with a low floor and a moderate ceiling. So from raw to like medium rare, like, no, nobody does that. Like nobody wants these. Like, I don't understand the fields like allure to these running backs who have raced roster cratering floor and moderate ceilings. Like can any of these running backs realistically on at, I guess at a rate that equals their ownership hit 30 points this week. If we played out the slate a hundred times, can miles Gaskin hit 30 points in this exact slate, 20 to 22 times out of the 100 contest. Can David Montgomery do it 19 times? Can Darrell Williams do it 18 times? Can Donta Foreman hit 30 points 16 times? Like, no, <laughs> they cannot. I, so when we're talking about like how do we want to approach a slate to try and take down a GPP, I'm almost immediately, and I should preface this by saying, I'm going a little MME this week. Uh, we're taking shots because I absolutely love the slate because I think there's a lot of awesome areas for leverage. So I'm adopting a little bit of MME and I am completely eliminating Miles Gaskin, David Montgomery, Darrell Williams, Donta Foreman, Michael Carter from my player pool, just based on that whole thought process that we just talked about. Like if they hit 30, I just, I'm, I, I probably won't win a ton of money. I'm, I'm willing to accept that fate by placing my, my bets, we'll call it, my bets in higher certainty areas. So that is probably made Sonic cringe, as I said that. Uh, but that's where I'm at, looking at these ownership numbers. Can I just ask you what the deal is with um, you saying like your analogy of like ordering a medium rare steak is being bad? No, like, I was trying to say I, like a range of like going to a restaurant and saying I want a range um, in the lower spectrum. Like <laughs> you, you, it's it's a low probability that it comes out exactly as I order it. But uh, it's going to be anything from like raw to medium well. Okay, like, fair. I was thinking yeah. you were going to, I was expecting you to go the direction of like, uh, you know, ordering your steak well done with a side of ketchup. Yeah. <laughs> being, the, like, being the wrong way don't, to eat a steak. Don't be Patrick Mahomes, is the moral of this story. I have nothing right. else to add to that. I'm, so I'm that's with you. Like, those running backs are terrible. Yeah. Like most of the pay, most of the pay down running backs yeah. just feel like so fragile, and and their ceiling and yeah. like it's one thing to have fragility because fragility really just means range of outcome, like a wide range of outcomes. And actually, fragility is probably not the right word for like Miles Gaskin, um, but like the time you want to embrace volatility is at low ownership, not high ownership, and 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 some of these guys just 
like Dave Montgomery, at least, I mean, you can at least argue that he's shown a really high ceiling, but like Miles Gaskin, like the one ceiling game he's had like in his career was when he caught 10 balls against Tampa Bay. And that's not going to happen this game because, you know, like that happened because you can't, uh, you can't run against Tampa Bay and they were super short on receivers. And, you know, like Michael Carter, I guess, I don't know, like these guys just feel feel really low ceiling to me. I concur. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. There's a lot, there's a lot of um, psychology, psychological aspects going on with these because Miles Gaskin has put up a big score this year. My, Michael Carter has put up, up a big, up, Jesus, put up a big score this year. Daryl Williams put up a big score last week. Dave Montgomery has shown a high ceiling that all came last season. Like this season, I think his top game was about 22, something like that points. So, and then you start getting into the, the injury backup guys, AJ Dillon, Mark Ingram, James Conner, um, Donta Foreman. If I'm going to this, you know, pay down range in running back, I'm going to want to generate a solid amount of leverage on the rest of my roster to be able to counteract the the known fact that there's going to be a you know conglomeration of ownership in this range. If I'm going there though, I'm going to AJ Dillon, I'm going to James Conner, I'm going to Jeff Wilson. These guys who are expected to basically have the backfield to themselves. They are non-zeros in the pass game and they are in okay to good matchups for you know their individual position. Green Bay at Minnesota, a, a plus in the matchup department for A.J. Dillon. James Conner against Seattle, they've given up the second most fantasy points to opposing backfields. A plus in the matchup, you know, individual matchup uh, box. Jeff Wilson against Jacksonville. You know, Jacksonville, we, we discussed this Jacksonville defense last week when we were seeing, you know, expected heavy ownership on their opposing running back. And Jacksonville is actually like, you know, top, what is it? Top five, top 10. I can't remember off the top of my head, but in yards allowed per carry to opposing backfields, but the, the aspect or the, the process, the prospectus of Jeff Wilson, having a San Francisco run game backfield to himself, because who do they have on the roster? They have Trenton Cannon and Trey Sermon, uh, two guys who have either played special teams or have not played over the last four to six weeks because they are not trusted by the coaching staff. So like the, the prospectus of Jeff Wilson having this backfield that we know bleeds and harbors fantasy production for their back for their running backs, like that outweighs the neutral to negative matchup against Jacksonville. So that's kind of my thought process on these guys. Christian McCaffrey, play that dude, 40 point upside, uh, one of only three players, like we talked about earlier, um, who is gonna hit 40 plus points at a heightened rate. If the slate were played out hundred times, hit me with uh, real quickly with some other running backs of note that you're seeing on the slate. Yeah. Chris, so Dalvin cook is one of my favorites in that he is, um, he's the Vikings best way of moving the ball and he's how they should try to win the game. And assumption of rational coaching is always a little dangerous. Um, <clears throat> but if you're the Vikings and you want to win this game, right, you want to keep Aaron Rodgers off the field. And like, that's how the, that's how the Vikings offense works best is when they're not one dimensional, right? When they can be multidimensional. Um, you could argue that Jonathan Taylor is the bet is the Colts best way to win. Um, similarly is kind of grind it out and keep Josh Allen off the field. Taylor's 
a little on the pricey side for me. Um, and Nick Chubb is going to be like against Detroit, which is a matchup that we've targeted with running backs for years. Um, and then Joe Mixon is interesting. There's nothing like in the matchup that really makes Joe Mixon like leap out at me, but he's projecting for sub 5% ownership and he's a bell cow running back uh, in a matchup where uh, his receivers, the receivers on that team, like it looks like close to half of tournament rosters are going to have at least one Bengal receiver. And so if Joe Mixon ends up, you know, getting two touchdowns and the Bengals receivers and none of them put up a really big score, like Mixon has like, that, that's lev- that's a way to describe leverage, right? Like you've, you've leveraged off the, you've got roster construction leverage because you're paying up running backwards, most fields paying down. And you have leverage off of the Bengals passing game that the field is going to be very heavily investing in. And so like, those aren't like, that's not a lock play to me, um, but it's a play I want to be comfortably over the field on. Um, and then I still think DeAndre Swift, like we haven't seen a ceiling game from him in a little while, but I, you know, we know he has it in him. Um, none of those, like the reason that the reason all these guys are going to be low owned is because none of them are like absolute smash plays, but like, I will happily want to be over the field on all of those guys because they all have, you know, they, all those guys have 30 plus point ceilings in them. And, you know, I want to chase that as opposed to trying to hope, like hoping and praying to get, you know, 18 or 20 points from Mark Ingram. Jonathan Taylor is super interesting to me this week. Starla Tulele, who is the nose tackle and kind of run stopper of this Buffalo Bills defense, is on the COVID list. Tremaine Edmonds, who's the middle linebacker, who is another large part of why this Buffalo Bills defense is so good against the run, is questionable after two DNPs and a limited practice on Friday. So, like, the whole, like, like the brunt of the middle of this run defense is either out or uh, going to be playing through uh, an ailment. You know, Tremaine Edmonds has a hamstring injury. So, very, very interesting. I agree that assumption of rational coaching here, but the, you know, riding Jonathan Taylor is most definitely what gives the Colts the best chance of success here coming out with a victory. So he's highly interesting as a running back behind a top offensive line that can basically beat any matchup. Um, You know, he's run for a hundred yards or more in four of his last five games over that same time. He's scored two, four, six, seven touchdowns. Uh, so, you know, this is a guy who is a massive part of this offense, um, who is a massive part of the red zone uh, usage, and um, that we might just see the inside of this Buffalo Bills defense, uh, particularly against the run, a little hamstrung here. But I like that call a lot. Uh, that's all I got. Anything final departing thoughts on running back before we look at some game environments? No, I just want to know, like, this is every week there's always like... There's always leverage. There's always plays you can make, right? There's always like, uh, you know, ways to leverage the field and, and find attractive plays at lower ownership than they should be. Um, but I said this for a while that like the field has by and large gotten pretty good at identifying good chalk. Like it's pretty rare to find just objectively bad chalk. Um, and, you know, I, I salivate when it happens because uh, it's uncommon these days. It used to be, you know, super common. Um but this week, like, oh my God, like they're like some of these running back plays are are just they're they're a, I don't know maybe I'm thinking about the wrong way, but like I, mean, I don't want to be too arrogant about it, but like I feel like some of these running back plays are just objectively bad chalk, and it's 
it's so unusual to have so many of those in one week. So I think it's awesome that you're doing like you're kind of upping your entries and like that's I, I, I try to think that way, too, of like, you know, when do I feel like I have a greater than normal edge and should I, you know, lean into that and try to go, you know, all in. Um, and, and this week feels like a great week for that. I just feel uh, and either I'll win all the money or lose it all. Right. But like, I just feel like the edge this week is uh, is tremendous if people are going to be investing in like Mark Ingram and, uh, and Miles Gaskin. I concur 100%. That's exactly how I came to that conclusion. Um, I, I'm still deciding if I want to still play single entry and three max because the edge is there in those contests as well. But as of right now, uh, I'm just allocating mass funds and mass focus uh, into milli and smaller 20 uh, max entry contests. Kyle is going to be I'll taking probably... me out for a somewhere between rare to or raw to medium rare steak at some point <laughs> in the near future. God, what an idiot! Terrible analogy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I it's it's interesting. Whatever, I'm not going to get down there. Uh, rabbit hole alert. Uh, we digress. All right, let's talk about some game environments, man. I've hinted at what is probably <laughs> my favorite game environment to attack that is going to garner almost no ownership where i think it should um at multiple points in this podcast that is houston tennessee and again this was a saturday morning in the shower realization that like why is this one why was i not considering this game two why is the field considering donta foreman and not much else from this game and three, like because of the state of this slate, we don't have very many game environments in this, you know, outside of those late games that we talked about where it, it gives us an opportunity to capture bulk upside all at once. So what is going against this game? Two slow paced offenses, two teams who are should be considered a little bit more reactionary when it comes to throwing the football. What do we have going for it? The extreme uh, constriction of expected volume for Tennessee's offense. We already have a Houston team where they have a very, very tight. Um, I, I don't know how to explain it other than it's like Brandon Cooks and then a smattering of spread outness throughout the rest of the roster. So, like, when that is the case, like, I was on Tyrod Taylor two weeks ago before their bye. He failed completely in what should have been, a, you know, one of a, a better matchup for them against Miami. Um, and I wasn't considering him at all. And then I read JM's piece. I listened to the Angles podcast again, and I, it, it just clicked where I was like, oh, my God, like, I'm not even considering this. And so I spent like the rest of the morning, like considering this game. And I came to the conclusion that like each of these pass offenses is expected to be extremely concentrated. We know Tennessee has given up the most yards uh, to wide receivers in the NFL this season. We know that Tyrod Taylor typically doesn't turn the ball over. Like last week's game was the worst game of Tyrod Taylor's career. And, you know, that goes back nine, 10 years. So he didn't play, he didn't start for, you know, three or four of those years. But like the point remains, like Tyrod Taylor is a processing quarterback in the sense that he is able to make the reads and come to a good decision at a fast rate. And that is why he's stuck around the league. He's able to make the right reads and come to the right conclusion on where the ball should go. And in doing so, he just doesn't turn the ball over. So he threw three picks last week. 
Uh, it was like a career worst game. Nobody's on him. And we have a Tennessee defense who's extremely pass funnel and has been extremely inconsistent on the back end this year. So then I was like, okay, so if I expect or if I create a Tyrod Taylor, um, Brandon Cooks roster, because that's where majority of the targets are going in Houston and they succeed, what does that do for Tennessee? Hello, AJ Brown. So like I'm all over a Tyrod Taylor, Brandon Cooks, AJ Brown game stack out of that game. Um, I think that both Brandon Cooks and um, A.J. Brown are viable as one-offs, viable as correlated pairings. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about the low expected ownership from what I consider the most important pieces of this game. What are your thoughts on Houston, Tennessee? Uh, I love that. I mean, we've played Houston before, right? Um, at the beginning of the year. And, you know, when they had uh, when Tyrod was starting originally and like, look, he came back, he came back from injury, he had a bad game. And so I think there's some amount of recency bias there in, in the field, you know, looking at him and, and disregarding him. But like you've got a, a quarterback who for his career has shown himself to be entirely capable. He's not elite, but he's certainly a capable quarterback who can you know, make the throws. He has some rushing upside. Um alpha wide receiver who's likely to to see the majority of the volume and we know so let's also look at brandon cook's first three weeks of the season seven targets 14 targets 11 targets over 100 yards in two or three games last week tyrod taylor comes back brandon cook's 14 targets like tyrod is gonna pepper cooks um so we have a high target expectation um we have you know a reasonably capable quarterback and cooks is good that's a it's a cheap stack you know cooks and tyrods are 11k and so the question, you know, can they get you 44 points, 4X? I think that's I think that's a reasonable outcome. Can they get you 55 points, 5X, that would put you on pace for 200 or 250? Yeah. Right? Tyrod's ceiling is in the 20 to 25 range. Um, and Cook's ceiling is 25 to is like 25 to 30. So, you know, it's that that is the ceiling outcome, but I think I guess both those are reasonable outcomes. Um, I'll, I'll pitch in on the, the foreman, the foreman shit talking and just note, like, uh, Donta Foreman played 35% of the snaps last week. Um, you know, Jeremy, Jeremy McNichols is gone. Um, but Adrian Peterson played 33% of the snaps and, you know, Foreman, when McNichols left, Foreman's role ticked up, but Peterson's didn't change. Um, Peterson got the goal line work. So, you know, I don't think Peterson's going away. And Foreman ran for 2.7 yards per carry, which is, you know, and it was against the Saints, who are a tough run defense. Um, it wasn't like Peterson did a lot better. Sorry, Peterson got the goal and carry the week before against the Rams. Um, but, you know, Foreman has outperformed Peterson. But not massively. I don't think AP is going away. Um, and I and so and. I, and I just, I love the Titans pass game. You've got Marcus Johnson, who's super cheap. Um, I mean, God, I guess I'm at a stack with Tyrod, Brandon Cooks, and Marcus Johnson coming back. And then what you can do with the rest of that roster. Pretty much whatever you want, both from an ownership perspective and from a salary perspective. Um, but A.J. Brown is really, I mean, he's the he's the better bring back, right? He's the alpha of the offense. He's the one who's most likely to hit if uh, if the Tennessee pass game hits. Um, but I love I love that game environment. And 
that's kind of the way I want to build this week is looking for early games because there are like, you know, we talked about the early games being weaker for game stacking, which is true, but there are nine of them and there's only three late games. So odds are we're going to get a good early game performance and, and not just from like one of the, high, the the heavily favored teams. Like the odds are that we will have one good like game environment, um, <clears throat> not just like one team stomping the other. And so if you capture that at low ownership, there's like a strategy angle there, then it lets you lets you proceed into the afternoon games with that information in hand of how that went and adjust accordingly. So that's kind of how I want to, how I want to play this week is I want to target some of these early games um, and then try to get you know some early rosters that are in good position by spreading out my early game exposure. Um, and again, I'm I'm Yahoo is doing that free money tournament again. So if you don't play, I I don't know why why you don't like free money. Um, but they're doing 200k guaranteed overlay. So I'm doing I've been mixing that. And so I want to have I want to have spread out exposure to a lot of these early games. Um, and then I'll just go back as the early games come to an end and look at like they're not all going to hit. But I'll just look at like which ones hit at low ownership and cool. Then I can just play the safest plays from the late games on those and like distribute my ownership of the late games accordingly. I love it, brother. Marcus Johnson is typically playing 66 to 70, 65 to 70% of the offensive snaps. If the Titans are passing a little bit more than their norm, there is viable paths to six to eight targets. Um, AJ Brown, viable paths to eight to 12 targets. You know, two of his last three games, he was at 11 targets. Uh, so these are higher upside than ownership and pricing is hinting at this week, which is why we're highlighting those plays. You want to go next with a game environment that, uh, that you like this week? Yeah. Um, God, <laughs> I feel so gross saying it. Um, say, it. Uh, yeah, it's uh, I mean, it's Seattle, Arizona. So and I feel gross just because of last week. Right. Which is clearly recency bias on my part. Um, but so Kyler Murray is expected to be back. And I think Kyler Kyler being back has a pretty significant impact to this game environment. Right. Um, if Kyler's not back, then the, the Arizona offense is it's hard to get invested in anything other than James Conner. And even even he takes a pretty significant ding because you just have more risk of overall offensive failure. Um, but like Kyler Murray is one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL. Like, let me go, hang on. Let me, let me, let me sort the ownership out real quick. So Kyler Murray is one of the top ceiling quarterbacks in the NFL. Um, but he hasn't played in a little while and he hasn't been rushing as much, which we talked about in the show before. Um, but we know he's still one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL is capable of big ceiling performances and his ownership is projected at 0.8%. Russ Wilson is another one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL, um, who is capable of massive ceiling performances, although he generally requires the other team to sort of push him into them because Pete Carroll's an idiot and his ownership is projected at 3.4%. Um, James Conner is going to be massively owned and there's going to be a fair bit of ownership on the, on the receivers, right? Like DK Metcalf. there in the passing game to figure out like who the hell do you stack with um but now you've got uh hopkins out and so they've got now they're they're down they're, they're down their alpha receiver and they're 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 down to like some cheap guys right and all those guys all those guys are pretty inexpensive and 
you know, if Arizona, and, and this game relies on Arizona. And when I do my showdown write-ups, I often kind of look at like, what's the fulcrum on which this game will tilt. And, you know, like in, in Chicago games, it's always, is Justin Fields going to be terrible or is he good? And in this game, it's going to be, can Arizona's offense push Seattle? Because we know that Seattle will happily just sit on the ball, eat the clock and run, 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 um, unless they get pushed by their opponent. But if they get pushed by their opponent, they will open up. And that's where you get those like Tyler Lockett 40-point ceiling games. Um, and so I kind of think like I wouldn't play... I'd be okay playing Lockett or Metcalf, preferably Lockett um, by himself as a one-off, but I wouldn't want any more investment in this game unless I have Cardinals because I feel like, you know, for Seattle as a whole to really go berserk, like you you need you need the opposing, opposing team to push them. Um, but I love the idea of, you know, if Kyler Murray plays of stacking up this game because with Kyler, Arizona can put up points in a hurry and we've seen them do it like like they have been crushing this season when Kyler's when, when Kyler's been playing and uh one sec I'm just going to go look up some quick Kyler stats so like Arizona let's see one two three four five in six of eight Kyler starts this season uh, Arizona has put up 30 or more points um and so like I feel pretty good about Arizona's ability to push the Seahawks if Kyler plays uh, and my understanding is it looks, it seems likely uh, from what I've seen on Twitter, from like Beat Reporter Twitter. So I love that play. Uh, I love that game environment. The downside is, it, of course, doesn't fit my strategy of trying to stack early games. Um, but I think that that's one of the stronger games to stack. And it gives you the ability to adjust to that game if uh, based on how early games are going. So, you know, it's going to be the least owned of the late games. And so that gives you some flexibility uh, if you're if you need to get more contrarian on a roster that that's a perfect game to stack uh, to pivot to from like from, you know, Dallas uh, Chiefs or Bengals Raiders. Um, it, it comes in at much lower ownership. I love that. I love the thought process behind what would it take for Seattle to be pushed here. Uh, I dig that discussion. We can't leave this section, I don't think, without talking about the Dallas and Kansas City game. Um, so I'm actually, I want to hear your thoughts on it first. Uh, I put some significant thoughts into this game in the end around. So I want to hear your thoughts before uh, I chime in as well. Yeah, this is like, honestly, I am struggling with this game. Um, it's the highest total game. Like, let's let's start with what we know. What we know is these are two elite offenses. Um, what we know is this is the highest total game on the slate by a significant margin. Um, what we know is Dallas has one of its primary receivers out, which narrows their distribution volume. Um, and those are the positives. What we also know is that uh, we know that Patrick Mahomes has not looked as otherworldly uh, this season as we have become used to seeing from him. Um, we know, you know, they they eviscerated the Raiders, but in the five games prior to that, to the, the dissection of the Raiders, uh, they only scored over twenty points once, and that was against like Buffalo, good defense. Washington, terrible pass funnel defense. Tennessee, terrible, you know, terrible pass funnel defense. New York Giants, eh, defense. Green Bay Packers, not good defense. So, like, it wasn't like they were going up against a murderer's row of elite defenses there. And, you know, like, I don't want to say, like, Patrick Holmes isn't broken. I don't think, this, I don't think it's anything like that. Um, I think that's, like, you know, a bit hyperbolic. 
But I do think it's fair to say that based on what we've seen from the Chiefs this year, I think there's a wider range of outcomes uh, than we're used to seeing from the Chiefs in a given game. Uh, there's it used to be that like the Chiefs failing was like a complete outlier scenario. And we've seen it several times this year. So I think we have to at least consider that. We also know that Dallas's pass defense, like there, there's some vulnerability there, right? They give up a lot of deep balls, which, you know, there's a guy on the Chiefs who you might might remember is pretty good at catching deep balls. Um, but they also have like they've locked down some reasonably capable offenses they played very up and down football all year right like but they've they've done pretty well against a few capable offenses throughout the season and the chiefs defense is another one that is historically uh much better at home and i think that that's another defense that like their personnel and their scheme are better than they've been playing to date so all this is to say like it's a good game to target um, there's, there are two offenses with relatively narrow distributions of volume with elite quarterbacks, with elite skill position players. Um, Mark Cooper being out narrows the volume distribution for Dallas, but you also have to consider that when a primary offensive weapon is out, it does add to the risk of overall offensive failure. Um, so like all this is to say, like play the, I, I'm going to stack the game. Um, but I don't think it's a like no brainer. I will have 100% exposure to this game on every single roster I build um, because I do think there are paths to failure. So it's my favorite game environment of the slates. I don't say any of that to like ding it or say that it's not or like try to think it, like I don't think it's likely it's going to fail. Um, but, you know, on some slates, we get these like we get the best we get this like best game environment where it's like it's really hard to imagine a path to failure in this game. And I don't think that's the case at uh, in Dallas KC. I think that it's unlikely for the game to fail, but I think we can envision a path to failure for it. And so, um, you know, I, I want to be a little bit cautious of it is all. That was a very hedgy answer, wasn't it? But <laughs> Yeah, it was. <laughs> but actually, I think it was, I think it was a benefit and warranted because all anybody that is listening to this podcast has likely seen around the industry is just, you know, play every player in different ways from this game that you can. And uh, when we look at the top level numbers, these two offenses are the top two most efficient offenses in the league. They're top in drive success rate. They're top, both top five in points scored per drive. So these offenses are good. Yeah, we get it. The most interesting stat that kind of stuck out to me when I was digging through this game for the write-up was Dallas's situational pass rates this season. With a lead, they're passing only 46% of the time. Neutral, situational neutral, so the score within seven points either way. Uh, on early downs, you know, the whatever, the whole nine yards, whatever goes into declaring it situation neutral, it's defined differently depending on where you look. Uh, I utilize sharp football stats for this, uh, and he does early down. So taking away um, long down and distance to go, um, and he does score within seven points. So that situation neutral pass rate for Dallas this season is 56%. So a 10% increase from when they're leading. Their pass rate when playing from behind is 66%. So compare that to like the the Bucks, who are at like 71% total pass rate on the lead uh, or on the season uh we start to see that like all three in all three of these situational pass rates uh numbers 
they are bottom 10 in the league. So we've kind of touched on, you know, how this Dallas offense has evolved. Um, the different players that they're getting in the loop, you know, they're not going to run Zeke 28 to 30 times like they were earlier in his career because they have a dude named Tony Pollard and they have a guy in Zeke that they just signed to insane amount of money last year that they're trying to uh, kind of elongate his career. Right. So all those players, they have CD lamb. They have typically have Amari Cooper. They have two, uh, well, two guys that they took in the class last year, CD lamb and Cedric Wilson. And then they have Noah Brown, who's highly capable as well. They typically have two tight ends. We know that one of them is out in uh, Blake Jarwin. uh, So left to Dalton Schultz. Before the Amari news came out, and this goes back again to our discussion on late week breaking news and how to adjust to it. Before that uh, news that Amari would miss on the COVID list this week came out, I was viewing this game with a more pessimistic, I I guess I should say comparatively pessimistic when you look at the, how the field was viewing it. We know, and it was mostly in line with what the Kansas city chiefs like to do on defense. Um, How does that line up with how we can expect the Cowboys to attack here? So we know Kansas city likes to limit downfield passing. We know that, They have largely done so this season, but they've still allowed all these yards uh, against opposing wide receivers. So I was curious why that is. And then I found out that they've allowed the second most yards after catch um, in in the league this year. Okay, so immediately I went and looked up the underlying metrics for um, Dallas pass catchers. I was like, who is good at yards after the catch in this offense? Michael Gallup, dating back to last year, is highly prolific and proficient in the deep passing game, an area of the field that Kansas City tries to take away. He is extremely poor on a small sample size in yards after the catch per reception this season. Obviously, he's only played the the two games now. Dating back to last year, he was below average in yards after catch per reception. CeeDee Lamb. Top 85% of the league in yards after catch per reception this season. Cedric Wilson, top 85% in the league in yards after catch per reception. So those are the two guys that are, I guess, generate a lot more interest from me this week now that Amari Cooper is out because how do we expect Dallas to handle their personal alignments? Well, Amari Cooper was mixing routes on the perimeter and in the slot. When Michael Gallup was out, who was a primary perimeter wide receiver, they actually shifted Cedric Wilson into the slot and kept Amari and, um, and CeeDee Lamb on the perimeter. So now that Amari, who played both slot and perimeter, is out, how are they going to handle this? Well, based on a personnel available, you know, healthy personnel available to them for this game, they're down a tight end where they like to run increased 12 personnel and they're down a, they're kind of like, um, I don't want to use queen chess piece cause that's Emmanuel Sanders gig, man. But, um, this, this wide receiver who they're capable of moving around the formation. I, I think that we're going to see Michael Gallup, CD lamb on the perimeter at a high rate, Michael Gallup, almost hundred percent this week and CD lamb probably going to see a few snaps in the slot, but he's going to be primarily on the perimeter. And we're going to see Cedric Wilson 
in the slot for a hefty portion of his snaps. He's played 89%, something like that. Uh, I forget the exact number. 80, it's like 85 to 89% of his snaps this season have come from the slot. So that's how I think this offense is going to look. When you look at like how it matches up with their matchup with the Chiefs, we know that they're probably going to struggle passing the ball deep. We know that, we know that they like to get the ball in CeeDee Lamb and Cedric Wilson's hands in space. Typically, what we've seen is slants. We've seen double moves. We've seen you know routes designed for these two players that are designed to get them um, the ball in space, and that is through Kellen Moore's offensive design. This is an offensive coordinator who has designed an offense to maximize the talents of his players. We're also going to see a hefty um, workload for Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard. I would not be surprised to see them combine for 30 to 35 rush attempts in neutral to positive game scenarios and game environments. So if they are within a score for the entirety of this game, we're probably going to see Zeke end up with 22, 23, 24 rushing attempts. And we're probably going to see Tony Pollard end up with 10, 12 of his own. So there's a wider range of potential outcomes when it comes to individual plays than the field is going to give credit for this week. So that was where I started the week. I'm now at like the expected boost to volume for CeeDee Lamb and Cedric Wilson in particular uh, has them highly intriguing to me. I think they can be played naked. I think they can be played with Dak Prescott. Um, if going to a quarterback from this game, I think it should be from an optimal allocation standpoint. I think it should be Patrick Mahomes as the higher likelihood chance of putting up a game in more broad game environments because really the moral of the story here is we have a wide range of outcomes on the most popular game on the slate and the field is not viewing it like that. So I rambled on uh, pretty far there. Um, I like Tyreek Hill as one of the three players that can put up 40 points at a heightened rate this week. I like CeeDee Lamb. I like Cedric Wilson. I likely won't be going to Travis Kelsey uh, for a lot of the same reasons that have been described around the site this week. Um, but those are my primary plays. And if uh, playing a quarterback, it'll likely be Patrick Mahomes. Any parting shots on that game before we clean up some positions and then get this wrapped up? I don't think so, no. No, you covered it in detail. All righty then. Oh, don't play Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. Yeah, don't play or uh, uh, or, or Daryl Williams. Darryl Williams. They're, yeah, they're, don't, they're almost don't certain to split, is my guess. I'd concur with that assessment. No. All right. We talked about running back position. That was covered in depth. We talked a little bit about quarterback position. We'll start there as we wrap this up. I'm fairly certain that a vast majority of you are wondering why I said earlier that I was looking to pay down at the quarterback position this week. And it is basically a quote-unquote state of the slate. So we have Josh Allen in a game against Indy with um, a good game environment for Buffalo Bills quarterback expected production. Okay. We have Lamar Jackson, who is sick again. I called him Lamar Petri Dish Jackson on Twitter earlier today. Uh, this dude is always sick. I don't get it. Uh, he's likely to play, I would think. Um, but a game against Chicago where they are highly unlikely to be forced to push the issue here. We have Kyler Murray coming off an ankle injury and a two-game absence against Seattle. We already talked about that game environment. 
And then we have the two quarterbacks in the aforementioned Dallas and KC game in Patrick Mahomes and Dak Prescott. Like that is your upper tier of expected fantasy production at the quarterback position. So what do we need to fade if we are paying down at the position? We need to fade a blow-up spot from the game environment of Indian Buffalo based on the expected elevated rush rates for Indy. I expect to see Josh Allen land on the lower end of his expected pass attempt range. I don't expect him to be throwing the football 47 times. We talked about um, in depth the offensive tendencies and the shift in philosophy from this team. So we got to fade a 35 point game from Josh Allen. We got to fade Lamar Jackson being forced into increased aerial aggression, as has been the case uh, two out of the last three weeks, where, you know, the last two games he's thrown the ball 43 and 41 uh, times that game in week five, that overtime thriller comeback. He threw the football 43 times his other games, 31 attempts, 27 attempts, 37 attempts in Denver, 31 attempts, 26 attempts, 30 attempts. Okay. So we got to fade a 35 point game from Lamar Jackson on likely lower than um, his uh, likely on lower pass attempts in his range of outcomes. We got to fade a 30 to 35 point game from Kyler Murray in his first game back from an ankle injury that is likely going to further decrease his rushing upside and potential. I would think we got to fade. The last part is we got to fade blow ups, you know, 35 plus point based on their expected ownership uh, games from Patrick Mahomes and Dak Prescott probably fade a 28 to 30 point game. So. I've talked a lot about Dak Prescott, the changing dynamics of the Cowboys and their offense philosophy. He's hit 30 points two out of um, his eight fully healthy games. Okay, so he can do it, but we just got to fade uh, a 25% outcome, which is right in line with where his price should be. We got to fade a four to five touchdown game from Patrick Mahomes and fade him going for 35 plus points. Well, he's done it, uh, just did it last week, and he's done it one other time, which was week one against Cleveland. So is Patrick Mahomes likely to pass for the football 50 times again? Like we don't know. He did against Las Vegas and it was primarily a function of all the offensive plays that they ran. So he could do it. But when we consider the fact that Dallas is likely going to be trying to play keep away from Kansas city, it's highly unlikely to me in my mind that we see Kansas city able to run 73 offensive plays like they did last week. So all that goes into, those are all the cases like against those top tier players. They're top tier for a reason, but that's what we have to fade if we're paying down at the position. And that's what I'm choosing to do because of the fact that I'm looking to spend up at both running back and wide receiver this week, because all the reasons that we've talked about through the most optimal ways to generate leverage on the slate. So down at the bottom, I like Cam Newton. I like John or uh, Byrod Taylor. Um, and that's pretty much it from the bottom tier of pricing. I like um, Aaron Rodgers as a player who is going largely overlooked this week, right below that top tier of pricing. I like Jalen Hurts um, for his rushing upside, but uh, I'm likely not going there this week because of uh, how we've seen this Philadelphia offense operate recently. I like Ryan Tannehill for the aforementioned reasons on that game environment discussion. And I'm likely staying away from the quarterbacks in the Cincinnati and Las Vegas game. 
The last sharp one that I'll bring up is Russ Wilson. Uh, he is right in this nebulous region of pricing at 6.5. But if we see him put up 35 to 40 pass attempts as he's uh, did last week against Green Bay, it's highly likely that not only is he succeeding, but he's dragging along either Tyler Lockett or DK Metcalf. If you want to think about it inversely, if either DK Metcalf or Tyler Lockett are dragging him along, that is fine too. But that is a situation that I mentioned as well. Anything I missed at the quarterback position? Uh, I will add Tua to the list. Um, he's 5,500. Dolph, he's going up against the Jets. And like, I, I will always play quarterbacks against the Jets. <laughs> um, I feel like the most people get worried about like a blowout narratives of like, well, if they blow them out, like they won't have to throw very much. And that's, we ha- like, there are some teams for who that's true, right? Like Seattle is a team for who that's true. Um, and that they just significantly adjust their play style based on how the game is playing out. Um, but we have years of data on the NFL that shows that overall, when a team blows out their opponent, uh, the quarterback and the pass catchers, there's no, statistically significant negative impact to their fantasy production. Um, so I will, like, I will always target guys against uh, one of the worst defenses in the NFL. And it's funny, like, I feel like we keep learning this lesson where like every year someone wins a million maker with an onslaught against the jets. And every year it's like, Oh, I thought about playing that, but I just thought the game would be non-competitive. And so like they wouldn't throw much. And so I didn't play it. And so I will happily continue to target uh, jets defenses. I love it, man. Let's jump over to wide receiver. We've covered a lot of these guys already. Obviously, the top two of Devontae Adams and Tyreek Hill, those high ceiling plays. We also have a dude in Justin Jefferson chilling up here at 8.1, um, who I broke down a little bit um, in the write-up of this game. People view Adam Thielen as this insanely efficient red zone threat. Yes, he has been insanely efficient. That said, he's only seen 11 red zone targets compared to the 15 for Justin Jefferson. So there are a lot of ways for Justin Jefferson to succeed and put up 30 to 35 fantasy points this week. If I'm playing Justin Jefferson, I am likely doing so with a full Devontae Adams and A.J. Dillon uh, stack from the other side. And I broke down why I think that is the case. Uh, in the end around, and I don't think that you need to include Aaron Rodgers in that, but you can add him if you'd like. So, moral of the story there, if you're playing a Minnesota position player, I think it should be with a correlated bringback or in a game stack. We got Stefan Diggs. Um, in another game where Cole Beasley is fairly banged up with his ribs, uh, so entirely viable, and I think um, probably going to gain a little bit of extra attention based on his 33-point output last week, but again, a player that can go off um, in a matchup against a defense that is extremely pass funnel. AJ Brown, we covered. CeeDee Lamb, we covered. And then down to Jamar Chase and down. We do. I want to cover it now before I forget. Hollywood Brown, another late breaking news. Marquise Brown has been ruled out for this week. What does that do for us? Well, we have um, Devin DuVernay, who picked up a late week injury, um, popped on the injury report for the first time on Friday. We also have uh, Sammy Watkins, who is back in the fold, who is healthy again. 
We have Miles Boykin, who is a rotational slash situational wide receiver who is out. Um, and we have Rashad Bateman. So what do I expect? I expect Rashad Bateman to be the one with the highest chance, highest likelihood chance of stepping into Marquise's Marquise Brown's role, while Sammy Watkins is the one that is likely to remain unchanged. We do have some overlap with how Devin DuVernay and um, Rashad Bateman have been utilized this season. And that's more talking to like a route tree overlap. So there's some concern with that if Devin DuVernay does play this week. He's listed as questionable again with the late uh, weak knee injury. So we'll have to get some more fidelity there. But Rashad Bateman is a wide receiver that I'm highly, highly interested in. And I was highly interested in when Marquise Brown was expected to play. A little bit more so, we can expect maybe a slight bump to his targets, but he's already been living in all four games that he's played this season. He's already been living in the six to eight target range. So if we consider upside on top of that range of outcomes, this is a guy I like. Oodles and noodles, loads more than the talky T. Higgins, and he's priced $900 less than him. That's where I'll stop wide receiver. I'll leave the rest of the floor over to you before we continue. That's what, yeah, I love Bateman. We talked about him a little bit, I think, uh, through text messages, right? Um, <laughs> I texted Hilo when, yeah, uh, that was me. when Brown was out. <laughs> and it's like, um, yeah, Bateman's an awesome play. And, you know, I remember he was really, really chalky a couple weeks ago. And what we talked about at the time was his first game they used him in this really short area role and they've changed that and he's being used more downfield, which gives him more upside. Um, so I love Bateman. Um, I, there's some elite receivers who are coming in at really low ownership this week. Um, Justin Jefferson is, I think probably the single best example at like three to 5% is where I have him right now. And, you know, that's, you've got like so much ownership on Packers and there's almost no ownership on Vikings and we know that the Packers are one of those offenses that will just kind of sit on it if they're way ahead and they'll play really slow. They'll play really slow no matter what, but they'll just they'll slow down even more um, and they'll just play super conservatively if they're ahead. So I don't think that, you know, the, the Packers are a concentrated enough offense that I think you can have like Devonte or Dylan get there without a Viking. But if you're going to play more than one Packer, I think that you need a Viking. And I think Jefferson is, uh, or Dalvin cook. Um, but if we're talking wide receivers. So Jefferson is my favorite one there. Um, I like Diggs. Uh, I like MVS as a cheap wide receiver who like, let me, let me back up. A lot of times when we dig into these really cheap wide receivers, people are chasing guys who are much more floor than ceiling, right? They're playing, you know, people want to play guys like, I don't even know. I'm just looking at fantasy labs, Danny Amendola. And they're like, oh, he's he's got a slot receiver. He's got a good floor. And it's like, I don't care about floor in tournaments. Um, MVS has like a 25 or 30 point ceiling. We've seen it multiple times throughout his career. Now the odds of hitting it are low. Um, but if he does, like he's he's low owned. He's really cheap and he's great leverage off of some of the Green Bay chalk, although you can also play him with the other Green Bay chalk. Um, so it, it just gives you further leverage into that game environment. Um, I'm pretty down on the Bengals receivers 
Uh, Brandon Ayuk is one that I suppose you could target at 5K, modest price. We've seen him go back to a full-time player after being sort of inexplicably in Kyle Shanahan's doghouse at the early part of the year. Um, but we've seen him go back to being a full-time player, and it's a positive matchup. Um, the 49ers are another one of those teams where like they're not likely to throw a ton unless, they're, unless their opponent pushes them. But they can support you know, a good performance or two um, without uh, without being pushed aggressively. And at Brandon Ayuk's price, like I'm actually kind of more on Ayuk than Debo. You know, Debo's a better receiver with a stronger involvement in the offense. But like at Debo's price, he just he needs so much more. I'm just browsing. Like I don't like that many others. I will say, like if you if you're willing to get if you're willing to take on a lot of risk and um, I think that Byron Pringle is an interesting play in uh, on the Chiefs. And let me pull up the snap counts for a sec. Uh, Michael Hardman has been sort of getting phased out a little bit. Uh, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm getting the snap counts for. So give me one sec. Right there. So Michael Hardman only played uh, the last three weeks. Hardman snap counts 49% week eight, back up to 65% in week two, 32% in week 10. So like we're seeing him getting kind of phased back, phased out of the offense. And I think they might just be kind of getting frustrated. They've given him all this opportunity and he really hasn't been delivering. And the Chiefs, like we're also seeing teams uh, figure out a defensive scheme that has shown some success in limiting them. And they need more playmakers in, in their offense in order to like help them move the ball in these like more uh, sort of marching drives that the, that the cover two shell that teams are playing against them are, is forcing. And it's clearly not Demarcus Robinson, who's a garbage receiver. Um, he's a blocker. It's clear. And, and Michael Harmon seems like it's not him either. And so Byron Pringle has been on the ascent. In the first few weeks of the season, Byron Pringle was playing like 17% of the snaps, 22% of the snaps. Last week, 61% of the snaps. And he delivered. And that's important, right? He not just got the opportunity, but he capitalized on the opportunity. So he's a risky play, right? Because like even that, even at that, he still got five targets um against the raiders so like he's a risky play but he's also like he's a fast guy like he's got some speed and thus the upside that comes along with speed so like if you're looking for if you're okay going thin um and you're just willing you just want to look for ceiling at low ownership like i think i think pringles got it um i think that's really about it though like honestly my wide receiver pool is pretty narrow this week Oh, yeah, I'll mention, is, I, sorry, I'll mention DJ Moore just because like DJ yeah. Moore is an absolutely elite NFL wide receiver and his price has been dropping because he's been playing with absolutely non elite quarterback play um, the poor on the poor Panthers. Um, but DJ Moore is a beast like he's he's an elite receiver. He's elite with the ball in his hands. Um, he's projecting for a little bit of ownership, but not a ton. Washington is a big pass funnel defense. And, you know, they're good against the run. They're really weak against the pass. Robbie Anderson appears to just be dead. Um, and at some point, they're going to stop throwing right, him the he, ball so many times just for him to drop it every time. So, like, TJ Moore is a play that I think I, I can get behind at, you know, 5,900. I think he brings he brings a lot of ceiling for 5,900. Yeah, there's actually four guys in this, this middle-tier pricing range that I really, really like. Brandon Cooks at 6K, Tyler Lockett at 6K. DJ Moore at 5.9, and then Christian Kirk at 5.7 as the de facto wide receiver one in Arizona. He has not had a Kyler Murray start when he has had that position because 
DeAndre Hopkins and Kyler Murray have missed the same games this season. So an interesting case to be made for Christian Kirk at 5.7 if Kyler is active. Leverage for days, like we talked about. Uh, I like that play a good deal as well. Let's quickly do tight end and defense. We're going uh, really true to OWS form, going super late here. Uh, but uh, James Grant, man. <laughs> Time has no meaning. That's what put this on one and a half. Oh, you're here with us live. Okay. Uh, sweet. Um, tight end is all over the place. And I think a legitimate case can be made that <laughs> there are no point per dollar separators um, at the position. We have, obviously, Travis Kelce, George Kittle, Darren Waller, Mark Andrews at the top. Right below them, we have TJ Hawkinson, Mike Kosicki, Zach Ertz, who feels a little overpriced, and Dalton Schultz in that mid-range. 4K and below, Dan Arnold, Dawson Knox, Ty Conklin. All these guys seem extremely viable. And I skipped over Dallas Goddard as well uh, with the questionable tag, but he is removed from the uh, concussion protocol and should play. <laughs> All these guys, we have Cole Komet at 3.4, who is playing in a game without Allen Robinson and has been getting the snaps. Absolutely has not uh, hit for a big game yet this year, but six, six, and eight targets over the last three games with an ascending role and um, opportunity for a little bit of additional targets with Allen Robinson out in a game against Baltimore where they should be having to pass. Also, we've got two guys at min price who, because the state of this uh, tight end position on the slate is so wide open, um, I think gain a little bit of value. That's um, Ryan Griffin, back to the well there. I played him last week. Uh, uh. With, the, with the quarterback change, I could see you know a six to eight target game for him that could matter on a slate like this. Um, and then obviously the height end situation in Washington with John Bates, yes, rookie tight end expected. Yeah. Expected <laughs> to probably step into an every down role in uh, that game against Carolina. So for min price, do attack with tight ends for years because the Cleveland defense is sort of schematically vulnerable to tight ends, but he's also like at 5,700. It's just, it's a really hard sell um, at that price. Like he's the, what they think he's the fourth or fifth highest price tight end on the slate. And like, he has not been playing like it. He's not been involved in the offense to that degree. Um, I was hoping his price was going to come down more after, you know, well, honestly a disappointing season. Um, But like, I think he's, you can throw him in the pool and just recognize he's a really risky one. Um, I love Waller. Uh, probably not so much on Kelsey. I'll definitely play Goddard if he's cleared. And other than that, though, I, I'm just going to do my normal thing. And like, I'm going to target tight ends in game stack situations. So like Tyler Conklin, I'll have in my uh, as a bring back on, you know, Packer stacks or in cousin stacks. You know, et cetera, et cetera. So, the, so to kind of sum up, like the, the ones I'll play in a vacuum, right? And as of as of right now, the Titans that I want to play in a vacuum without any other exposure to that game are Cole Komet, uh, Darren Waller, um, maybe Dallas Goddard, um, and John Bates, and kind of undecided on Ryan Griffin, maybe. And that's it. Other than that, I'll be game stacks. Yep, that's the same feel I got out of that position as well. Quickly, defenses will open up some questions and try and get everybody out of here, man. Defense, similar to tight end, is kind of like there's no clear way to go, um, which is a change from the past, probably 
the rest of the season, uh, to be honest. But we still see that we have chalk developing, and probably the top play on paper is one of those chalk pieces in the Cleveland Browns uh, against Detroit. But we also have Baltimore priced at 200 more, who we know blitz at a top five rate against a Chicago team where they've taken four or more sacks, I think, in every field start, including that one nine sack game. Uh, so Fields is taking sacks. Um, one that I think is interesting that I don't think the field is going to be on is actually the Cardinals at 3,400. And the reasoning being, like, if uh, Russell Wilson's um, hand is really jacked up more than Pete Carroll is leading on, like, it, the, we saw what happened last week. Um, so that would be, like, it would feel recency biasy, but I think it's a little bit more than that. Um, it also offers uh, some interesting leverage opportunities playing them with James Conner if you want to go that route as well. Um, other than that, there's like there's really no like glaring top defense on the slate. What are your thoughts real quick on defense? Yeah, this is a tough one for me because I feel like I feel like the best defense is the chalkiest defense and it's because they're just mispriced. Like Cleveland's defense should not be 3,100 going up against Jared Goff, right? Like they should be one of the higher priced defenses on the slate. And so because they're not, they're priced like right in the mid range, they're going to be massively owned. And, you know, normally I, normally my general perspective is like, don't eat chalk at defense. Um, but I do think that they're I do think they're one of the best defenses on the slate. And so it's hard to say that, like, it, it's hard for me to say don't play them um, because they could well put up the highest score. Um, and, you know, it's, this, is, this isn't like a punt defense where you're hoping for nine or ten points um, at really high ownership. Right. Like this is a this is a like legitimate chance to put up the highest score. Um, yeah, it's uh, real quick there. I don't know if I'm about to blow your mind, but Tim Boyle is starting for Detroit this week, bro. Oh my God. I didn't even think about that. Fuck you. Right. It's not even Jared Goff. It's someone worse. <laughs> yeah. So that, that goes into it. We also, <laughs> the Browns have 29, 29 sacks on the season. So, um, a high pressure rate defense. Yeah. My God. Like, I don't even know. I feel like maybe I'll just eat the chalk there. And, and again, like it's not about individual chalk and individual ownership, right? It's about the whole roster. And so I think like you can play Cole Komet, you can play Cle the Cleveland defense, you can play Cole Komet and the Cleveland defense, just figure out other ways to be different. And so here's the thing, if you're playing Cole Komet and you're paying, and you're paying, the, playing the Cleveland defense, but you're paying down at quarterback and you're paying up at running back, there's your differentiation. God, like I like those. I mean, that's the problem is I like that defense. And like normally I try to poke holes in the highest end defense. Um, and I feel like I can't. I'm just kind of glancing through like there's nothing else that really jumps out at me. Um, I mean, I guess you could argue the Titans defense against um, Houston. like, But that kind of feels like just recency bias with like Tyrod because Tyrod's actually pretty, pretty adept at avoiding turnovers. Um, San Francisco's defense against Trevor Lawrence, who has had multiple just atrocious blow up games in his in, already in his career. If Kyler misses, I think you can play the Seattle defense. Um, 
because you've got like and they're cheap uh but you've got you know colt mccoy who's i think it's is it still colt mccoy backing him up colt mccoy get hurt last week i feel like i he did. He he should be back. He returned to a full practice on Friday. Okay, thank you. Um, so yeah, I mean, if Ky- if Kyler misses, you can play that. But the problem is, is you have to decide in your defense uh, before, right? Before we probably know about um, Kyler. And so, like, good grief, I don't know. Um, I don't think I'd take the chance on on Kyler uh, or on on Seattle defense without knowing about Kyler. And there's no other defenses in the late games I want. I mean, you could try to be like. If you're playing large field tournaments, you could try to be super contrarian. And, and I, I will do this occasionally, but like you could try to be super contrarian by playing like the Dallas defense or the Kansas City defense or the Raiders defense. Um, you know, I guess, you know, people are going to target those games really heavily. And so not only do you just fade the game, you play the defense. Those are really thin um, in my from my perspective. But I, I think I, I can at least mention them as an option. I'm probably going to mostly play Cleveland. Feels like I can. I concur. The one that I'll option as the best kind of pay down and try and get some points out of them uh, is Washington at two point four. They've scored between five and eight points, like six out of their last seven games. So if you're looking to just like get some points and move on, which becomes a little bit more viable on a week like this. where there's no clear, you know, outside of just throwing darts and hoping for a defensive touchdown, uh, Washington is probably where I would go paying down. That yeah, is true. Their, their pass rush has still been really good. Yeah. And we know that Cam can take.